Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Thank you. I think Nate's still learning that uh, you don't tell the pastor what to do. Um, I'm not very obedient. Only to the Lord. Amen. But to you, not so much. Yeah. I mean, he's trying to help me. I mean, he wants me to, you know, stop. I usually wear the same shirt and tie, if you notice those things. But I got a little bit of color today, um, a little bit of blue. That's for you. Yeah. And I know you wore the Valentine's tie for me. That's great. <laughs> you can tell that we, uh, we enjoy one another. The joy just to serve along with a brother who, who loves Christ, who desires Christ's best in, in others' lives. And so him and Tiffany have been a blessing to us. Let us pray, and we'll, then we'll go to the Word. Father, again, we thank you for the day where you clearly are sovereign. You sit on your throne, you navigate this creation, you are drawing people unto yourself through your Son. We marvel at all the things that you continue to do and have done. Even as we go into the gospel and mark this narrative, it pierces our souls to, to see all the wonder and the majesty that you display. And I pray this morning, Father, that you will, will teach us desires to walk in your ways, to have the Holy Spirit use your word to to shape and mind our thoughts so as to conform and mold our lives to Christ. So teach us, be with your servant. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of today's sermon is The Mounting Pressure Upon Jesus. I want to read our passage for us, starting in Mark chapter 3, in verse 7. The holy inspired word of God reads this. It says, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea and from Jerusalem, and from Indomia and beyond the Jordan. In the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should, be, should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell 
who he was. I think it's safe to say what we've studied so far in the the gospel of Mark is that we see two sources pushing against Christ. Both of these sources wanted a piece of him, but from different perspectives. Both of these sources pursued him, but again, for different matters. The one group pursued Jesus for selfishness. They wanted to get as much out of Jesus as they could. Often that was with physical healing. Yet they missed the heart of Christ's message. And that was that he came to save sinners. They missed the spiritual truth in in what she preached and proclaimed to them. That he came to redeem their soul. Which, by the way, would be far greater than any physical ailment they would ever receive. The other group sought out Jesus to trap him. To discredit him. To strip him of any authority and any popularity. The reason being is that their religious stock was diminishing. Jesus was a threat. Jesus was a threat to this group that they sent out ministry inspectors to examine how Jesus was going to go about living and and, and will they catch him in violating their law. And when they thought they found enough evidence to point to Jesus as a lawbreaker, they were rebuked, left in shame as Jesus told them the heart of the law. Jesus never broke God's law. If anything, Jesus tramples all over their legalism, their their man-made laws, and Jesus sets them straight in a rebuking way. Of course, when you read this gospel, it's these two sources that continue to mount pressure and pressure against our Lord. The crowds were were forming. They were massive. Some scholars believe that in our passage, over 50,000 people came from the area to see Jesus. For the crowds, word has gotten out that he heals, that he has miraculous power. And so the people were flocking to him. This popularity was was not entirely a, a good thing. Why? Because the crowds became so large that Jesus could not even enter a city at times, but had to stay out in deserted places so as to continue to move and teach his disciples and do the will of God. We read that in in Mark chapter 1, verse 45, when Jesus speaks to the leper there, when he says, but he went out and began to proclaim it freely. And to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city. But stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. What's remarkable about this 
is that often when we read the Gospels, we think about the 10 miracles or so that the Gospel writer highlights. I want to remind you that, that John tells us there's not a, enough books in the land to, to record all the miracles that Jesus did. He was performing miracle after miracle. And of course, the Jewish mindset knew that, that God's prophets, at least, came and displayed miracles. But Jesus was much more than a prophet. He is the Son of God, a messianic term that, that, that shows his divinity, that he's equal with God. But for the crowds, they were overwhelming him. When we started this gospel, we knew that Jesus had a purpose, he had a will, he had a direction. Mark 1, 15, 1, 14 and 15 said that he desired to, to preach repentance and faith in him. But for the people, they wanted his healing touch. They were seeking to, to be relieved of their pain and suffering. And I don't necessarily fault that. I, I think that, that that's okay. But I don't know about you, but if, if somebody healed me, I think I'd be more attentive to what they had to say. That there was value in their words. And that you would take note. These people wanted immediate gratification. Even for a depraved body that will continue to weather even though it was healed. And wither. In other words, the crowds were more concerned about their bodies than their souls. And that point can preach, right? Too often we can look at our own self more than our internal souls. It's a great reminder for us to, to make sure that we are, are, are more concerned that which is eternal than that which is going to be perishing. That's a call for you to stop your New Year's resolution and stop exercising. <laughs> I gotta turn the other way. That's don't do that. Don't do that. There is importance in, in health and all those kind of things, but what is more important than your body is your soul. The other group, the scribe, <clears throat> the Pharisees, they went out after Jesus, they went after his ministry. And we have just got done looking at that. I mean, over the weeks, we looked at four controversies, four conflicts that they were trying to trap him. Mark gives them. They're not necessarily in successful order, but, but he points them out and says, this is what's happening. Their intention was to indict Jesus as a lawbreaker. Their desire was to discredit the mounting popularization that Jesus was gaining the Pharisees wanted to catch him in the act. And so what did they do? As legalists often do, they looked with an evil, concerning eye. And at the end of the, the, the result of, of those four conflicts that the Pharisees and, and scribes had with Jesus, Jesus did what Jesus always does. He rebuked them and showed them to be even more ungodly than before. This only, of course, led them with a desire 
where we last left off in verse 6 of Mark 3 to destroy Jesus, to kill him. It's kind of like plan B. Plan A, we'll catch him, discredit him, discard him. When that failed, they went to the ultimate solution, and that was desire to destroy him. I smile at that because you and I both know the sovereignty of God, the eternal plan of God, the fact that he was going to go to the cross. It was just a matter of his timing and not theirs. And so Jesus knows what awaits him at their hands, but in the sovereignty of God, it wasn't the time. Matter of fact, it was only going to be the time when Jesus said it was the time. All we can say is that between these two sources of groups of people, the pressure upon Jesus was immense. And so as we come to our passage this morning, Mark moves us deeper into what we've already seen. It's, it's, it's much of, of a summary of what's happened, but what we'll see even into Mark chapter 6 is, is a more intensification, can I say that, an intensified look of this conflict between these two sources. It is as if Jesus and his life and ministry is put under a microscope, and what happens is that the, the scope narrows its view. It deeps, it, it, it zeroes in. And what will follow is, like I say, a more intense nature of these two sources pushing in on Jesus. And it gets more intense. Case in point, not only does Jesus heal the sick and the lame, as we will see in these going forward in these coming chapters, but he does even more than that. Mark chapter 3 will tell us that he, he will calm an angry sea. I mean, he is showing his divinity, his divine nature, that even creation obeys him. And by the way, every miracle that Jesus does is an act of, of God being over his creation. And where creation obeys his word... I think about when we get to Mark chapter 5, where, where in Mark 1 and Mark 3, we see individuals and, and demons being cast out. But when we get to Mark chapter 5, a whole legion of demons are cast out. Also in Mark chapter 5, he raises the dead. Meanwhile, the religious leaders accused Jesus of casting out demons, not by God's power, but by Satan's. And so they throw and hurl insults that what he's doing is evil, which doesn't go very far because you think about it. The person who's getting healed and the demon that's being cast out of the one who's demon-possessed, I mean, there is victory there. But these religious leaders of the day, which is often the case, the mounting threat that Jesus posed upon them in their ministry was growing. And so what does Jesus do? He starts teaching parables. You know what a parable is, right? It's teaching spiritual and conveying spiritual ideas 
by using your earthly means, something that they can grasp to understand something that is spiritual. And of course, those parables were not for the unbelieving, but for the believing. And so when we start moving through these chapters, the key question that is going to be asked is who is Jesus? And more importantly, are you for him or against him? What side do you line up? Let me just say it this way. Your rejection of playing Christ and playing church and not receiving grace and mercy and forgiveness, you are on the other side. You're in opposition against the truth. And it was only those who received through grace and through faith, through repentance, who were on his side. Which in turn motivates the individual to, to obey the scriptures and to walk in his ways and, and to give him glory. Now, before those questions kind of press in, in, in a greater way on our hearts, Jesus gives us a summary. Mark points to this, and it mainly focuses only on one of the sources, the crowds, the pressure of the crowds moving and pressing against our Lord. Can I say it this way? Jesus had a people problem. And it's interesting how he deals with it. And we'll see it here in just a second. But let us first see this mounting pressure from the crowd. Verse 7 and 8, look again there with me. Verse 7 and 8, read this. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. Now, we know that he withdrew. Why? Because verse 6 says the Herodians and the Pharisees were what? Wanting to destroy and kill him. If it wasn't the time, it makes sense that Jesus was going to withdraw. He's not running. He's sovereignly in control of all these things. But now is not the time. That's what I loved about the Gospel of John when we studied it. We're reminded constantly in John's Gospel that it's not yet, not yet, not yet until it was time. Verse 7 continues. Jesus withdrew to the sea. Of course, that would be the Sea of Galilee, which we would call a lake, with his disciples. The thought there of his disciples <clears throat> would be you know, there's not a number given, but we know that he's already called some of his apostles to himself. We know that, that some, some people are gathering um, up among him, and these are the group that are, that are following him. And a great multitude from Galilee followed. Now, it makes sense that people from Galilee would, would follow. Capernaum, where he set up shop with this, what Mark picks up in, in Jesus' ministry, this is what was happening. This is where the rebukes were happening to the Pharisees and scribes. This is what's going on with all the healings. And so it makes sense that the people in Galilee were looking for him. But here's what gets interesting. It says also from Judea and from Jerusalem, and from Endemia, and beyond the Jordan, 
in the vicinity of Tyre, Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. I mean, they're coming from every direction. The disciples, like I said earlier, it's, it's a broad term. It's a word meaning pupil, somebody who's learning, somebody who desires to adhere to the one who is teaching. These disciples are clearly ones who had a, a more interest in Christ. It wasn't just a superficial, heal me and I'll go my way and eat lunch. This was a desire to observe him, to sit underneath his teaching. Like I said, we have no idea of this, how big this group is. We know what follows in verses 13 is that he's going to call his 12 apostles. So we know at least they are in this group. But like I pointed out earlier, he already called Philip and, and Nathaniel in John's gospel in John chapter 1. We know in chapter 1, Jesus already called Peter or, or Simon, which he changes his name, Andrew, James, and John. And in chapter 2, remember Jesus called Matthew the tax collector. And so all these, these individuals are assembling, and the ministry team is starting to form, all in the sovereign care of a great Lord. And it says they withdrew, no doubt, like I said, removing themselves from the opposition, drawing themselves to a place where they can kind of get away, much like he's done in the past, to desert to a place where they can talk, where they can teach. And all of a sudden, all these people started streaming in from all directions. We know Galilee, it makes sense. Those people would come. Judea is, is south of Galilee. Jerusalem, of course, is the chief city. We, it makes sense, a religious hub where eventually Jesus will go and, of course, show his divine power over death through his resurrection. Edomia, it's kind of maybe an interesting term, maybe something that you're not familiar with. It's the only time mentioned here in the New Testament. However, it's, it's associated and traced back to the Edomites who were located even further south in Judea. I mean, this was a trek. Beyond the Jordan refers to the eastern side of the Jordan River. And this is what's so exciting to me. You notice that, that Mark points out to, to Tyre and Sidon, what's so significant about those cities and those places? Well, that's current day Lebanon. Those were Gentiles who heard about Christ. So even in the early stages of the life of Christ, you can see the beauty of what Jesus is doing. The Jew is coming, the Gentile is coming, and the crowd was mounting. And they all had this in common. Verse 8 tells us they had heard of all that Jesus was doing. This was by word of mouth, right? They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have any multimedia sources to get the word out that Jesus is in town. 
this, this travel or going to city to city, expressing with joy, and maybe even somebody who's been healed, expressing the joy that they have, knowing that, that the Messiah has come. And so you can kind of see the picture. Let's just say that maybe there's 50 people in Jesus' little following group. They got the lake right there, and they look around, and everywhere they turn, people are flooding in. They're flooding in. This was the situation, and Jesus responds. I call it divine sovereignty. I love what he does here. Look at verse 9 with me. And he told his disciples that a boat should be ready. <laughs> a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. The idea of the boat here is like a little dinghy. It wasn't a ship. It was just a small little dinghy, a small little boat. It'd be much like a robber with a getaway car, right? You got access to go and escape The verb here at the end of verse 9 is really translated as, and gives the indication that the reason why Jesus wants this boat, this is a purpose clause at the end of verse 9, so that they would not crown him, has the idea is that they would not squeeze or crush him. I mean, Jesus is rightly concerned. This crowd would, would overwhelm in their, in their zealous nature to get to him. And as we will see, their, their intention was to be at least touch him. And so he sees them as a mob, and he has a boat that is ready. Now you may ask, why do I call this verse divine sovereignty? It's because Jesus, even though it may look like that he has everything out of control, he is in control. Our Lord's primary motivation was always, like I pointed to earlier in verse 14 and 15 of Mark 1, to preach the gospel. Remember what it said there? Now, after John had been taken into the custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. If you haven't highlighted that verse or made a note to that, that is the verse, a couple of verses that you need to understand. That's what flows for the purpose and the plan of our Messiah. The physical healings, compassion, show of his grace, but wasn't the reason why he came. And what I love about this, as much as, I mean, you talk about, let's build, erect a building. We got 50,000 people coming. Let us build a big ministry here. I mean, Jesus doesn't do that. He's looking at a way to, to escape. He's under... Immense pressure. He doesn't cave here. He is just simply showing us his divine sovereignty and he's in control, even over 50,000 plus people. By the way, when you think about divine sovereignty, and by the way, every Christian I know understands sovereignty to some degree, but to what degree, I think, is this the greater question. For God to have, or Jesus to have divine sovereignty means that he has control of everything. There's nobody above him. And when I talk about divine sovereignty, 
God is the only one that has it. And when I talk about God, I'm talking about the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The sovereignty of God is the free exercise of his supreme authority and expecting or executing and administrating his eternal purposes when he desires to unfold them. Which, you think about your prayer life. I do pray at times, Lord, please come. A desired will, yes, of his sheep. But I also understand he's not going to come until he says it's time to come. And for that matter, God must be sovereign in order to be truly God. The Bible proclaims throughout the scriptures that the Lord reigns. Psalm 93, 1 and 2, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. I think of Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his sovereignty rules over all. I think of 1 Chronicles 29, 12 where it says, both the riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. That is our Lord. He's sovereign over heaven and earth, over events, over principalities and presidents and nations. I mean, you think about the bedrock doctrine of all of Scripture and what it teaches us. It's Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. The bedrock doctrine of all of Scripture is the sovereignty of God. God does as he pleases, when he pleases, and where he pleases. But what's beautiful about this divine sovereignty of our God is that according to his character, everything that he does is good. No evil. If you and I had divine sovereignty, I guarantee you we would, we would flash some of our own human selfishness in there. Our evil would come out. We would get rid of the Vandal football team forever. <laughs> That's why Jesus is in control. He is sovereign. And when I look at a narrative like this, I can't help but be excited. I mean, it rests my soul on the sovereignty of God that even when life seems to be out of control, 50,000 plus people pressing in, Jesus is still in control. It also tells me that because he is Sovereign, his promises will come to pass. And sometimes we need to hear that. I know we all believe that, but sometimes we need to know that it's not if these promises will come to pass, that they will come to pass according to his timing and his purposes. I look at verse 9. 
I'm amazed. It causes us to trust him, to follow him all the more. Verse 10 leads us to the reasons for the crowds. It's a pretty simple verse. The narrative says this, for he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. That's the reason why they were coming, right? Literally, when it says that they were coming, it has the idea and they were pressing in on him. They were literally wanting to fall upon him. I mean, you talk about the biggest pig pile ever made. This was it. The verbs here, of course, carry a negative sense, however. They were, were much like a Good Friday. Not a Good Friday. Uh, what is that? Black Friday. Good Friday is a different Friday. But Black, Black Friday shopping where they're pressing against the doors to get in to get whatever they want. And this is what they were doing. They were on a mission, and they weren't necessarily concerned about the old lady that were beside them or, or somebody who was in a wheelchair or somebody. I mean, they were self-consumed with a desire to touch him. Along with his divine sovereignty, verse 11 and 12 shows us his divine sovereignty, his divine authority, excuse me. Look at verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him. And shout, you are the son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Mark again showing us divine authority. He's been showing us from chapter 1 to chapter 2 that he has authority even over elements, over creation, over demons, over Satan, even with the temptation in the wilderness with Christ. Again, a showing that he has these divine attributes. Reminding us that he continues not to only have power over the natural world, but even the supernatural world. And it makes sense, right? For him to be God, he needs to have divine authority and power over that which he has created and even the enemy, which, by the way, he created For him to be God, and for that matter, carry the title, the Son of God, he must have power over Satan, his demons, and he did, and he showed it. I love what the text says. The demons were terrified at his presence. What did they do? Whenever the unclean spirits, which is, is synonymous with demons, saw him, they would fall down. This literally, they prostrated themselves. They, they bowed down in worship. This was, uh, they were subservient to him. And of course, the demon that's inside of a person, the person would fall on their face before him. And they knew that the Lord was sovereign. I think this is what's remarkable. Mark shows early on in these first three chapters that the testimony of, uh, of the ones who believe him are the ones who are the demons. Do you get that? They're the ones saying that you are the Son of God. They are pointing to his divinity, not the Pharisees, not the scribes, not the people, but these demons. 
And it only makes sense, verse 12, that he would not necessarily want them to be their, his witnesses, as we've seen earlier. They, they don't want him. They don't want them to go out, even though they got the right answer, to be a witness and testimony of who the Lord is. But James tells us what? That even demons believe and shudder. They have a form of theology that is somewhat right and yet would be a poor testimony and a witness because who they are is promoting evil and doing evil. Jesus. Doing what Jesus does. Healing people. All a secondary act of his compassion, his kindness. But the ministry and the mission will continue as we'll see next week. Twelve apostles are chosen. Even the one that who will betray him will be chosen. As the eternal plan of God will continue to, to unfold. Simple narrative summary. Of what Jesus has done and what Jesus will continue to do. And I guess the question you got to ask yourself, what's our takeaway from this? This is all great. But what's the application, right? I alluded to it early. When you read sections of scriptures of narratives like this, you can't help but marvel of the divine sovereignty and control that Jesus has. He has complete sovereignty, complete authority. And though the crowds and even demons press in on him, Jesus is not going to be deterred in, in proclaiming that he is the Messiah and that sinners must repent and believe in him in order to receive forgiveness and grace. Don't miss with all the show that's going on that he has one sole purpose, and that is to be Lord, and that is to be Savior. And more importantly, for your life. Not the crowd's life, your life. Will you understand the importance of why Christ came. He came to die for you, to forgive you and me, the sinner, to receive grace and forgiveness. He's not asking you what you can bring to the storehouse, how many good works that maybe you've done in the past. He knows that all your righteousness is like filthy rags and he wants your heart and obedience to repent and believe in him. The simplicity of the gospel comes in these gospels. No wonder there's four of them. To continue to help us understand the significance of why the church even exists is because of this gospel that changes people's lives. It's important for us not to recognize this sovereignty and authority without receiving in grace, in faith, the Lord and Savior of this divine sovereignty and authority. That's what makes Christ and Christianity so special that no other religion can duplicate. Jesus isn't asking you to work your way to heaven. He knows you can't do it. For that matter, there's not enough works that you can do it. And he reminds us in giving us the Old Testament law, it was there to show us that you can't do it. 
And so how do we respond to him? Believing, repenting, and trusting him. We'll continue to march our way through this exposition, Lord willing, and, and it's just remarkable to see all the things that continue to mount against Jesus, but the simple truth that continues to flow from it is to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. I mean, that's the beauty of why we come to the Lord's table. You think about why He has given us that. He wants us to remind us of all that He has done. In his act of love, grace, compassion, going to be crucified, to die, to resurrect on the third day, to ascend to heaven, to intercede right now at the right hand of God the Father for you. And so we will do that. And ask the men to come forward, the worship team to come forward. And as they're coming, I want us to bow our hearts in prayer as we prepare it to receive the elements in remembrance of him. Let us pray. Father, in your divine sovereignty, you know each and every heart. You know how our, our weeks and our days and our months have been going. You know how they will continue to go. In the midst of all that, I pray that you will continue to draw us near. For those who know you, who love you, who received your grace and forgiveness, your mercy, because they have believed and turned from their sins. May we just embrace and celebrate all that you have accomplished, your character, your, your, your awesomeness. Can I say it that way? Of course, you want us to take it in a manner worthy of, of, uh, of the act of taking it. You want to make sure that we're right with you and right with others. And so we prepare our hearts to do such a thing. We thank you for giving us this ordinance to continue to remind ourselves how great and how awesome you are. And so we pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, who has resurrected us from the dead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.